there is an adage that we're all familiar with that states seeing is believing. In other words, there are times we hear about something that seems to be untrue or hard to believe. So if we could just put our eyes on it, that would help us to believe. But even that's not always true, is it? During the earthly ministry of Jesus, people were amazed at the works he did, but not all that many ended up following him. Nobody could deny his miracle working, but instead of attributing it to God, some actually attributed it to demons. And even when someone was raised from the dead, like Lazarus, the religious rulers of the day would not accept it, even though they saw it with their own eyes. The disciples of Jesus did believe what they saw, and uh, they were no less, however, obtuse in putting two and two together about his full identity. This was brought out in their response to Jesus quelling the storm back at the end of chapter 4. Out of fearful wonder, they exclaimed, Who could this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this is definitely a man, they believe, but what kind of man can this be who can do these things? And it's really a question that's not been fully answered by the disciples up to the place where we read this morning. Now, since that event, you'll remember that they witnessed Jesus casting out legion, healing a woman who had only touched the hem of his garment, and raising up a little girl from the dead. All of these are signs. They're visible manifestations that should lead a person to believe Jesus is not merely human, not just a prophet who could heal and do wonders like the prophets of old, but that he was the Son of God. But the disciples still need more proof positive, and Jesus will give that to him to them in the next event of their ministry. He's going to confirm his deity by performing two humanly impossible feats. He will feed over 5,000 people from a very minuscule provision, and he will then walk on the storm-tossed sea of Galilee. So what more proof does someone need to fully realize who Jesus is? So let's ask the Lord's blessing as we look at these further evidences of Christ's deity. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today that the Word of God leads us, no doubt, to believe that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Lord, we realize that when we come to the evidence we have in your Word, we have to make a decision. We have to believe that Jesus is who he really said he was, or that he was demented, or he was deceptive. And Lord, of course, through uh, faith in him, we realize he really is the Lord. So we pray, Lord, you'll bless us today as we are reminded again through his great powers, through his wonder, who he is, and that we might be proclaimers of that in our day and age. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Let's first of all consider this morning the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 in uh, chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. Now, this is the only miracle that Jesus uh, performed that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Therefore, it must have been very important in the minds of the disciples because all of them put the record in God's Word. It's also very closely associated with the next miracle that follows in uh, Mark's Gospel. It's only left out of one of the Gospels, and that is the same uh, night after the feeding of 5,000, Jesus comes to them on the water, something uh, humanly impossible. And this becomes a turning point in their relationship to Christ, their understanding of his identity, even though they still do not fully grasp its significance, they're going to be growing in this right conclusion of who Jesus is. And we see this in uh, verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. So they're getting to the place they need to be, but also they're still pretty obtuse. Now let's go through this and uh, understand what Jesus did. In verses 30 to 32, we see Christ's care and concern for his disciples once again. In verse 30, then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. You remember the Lord sent them out on this first missionary uh, journey. He gives them the authority, the power to do the same things that he was doing. Mark doesn't give us any details as what that report included, uh, but Matthew conveys to us they did mention they were able to heal people, they cast out demons, and they did much teaching. So the Lord uh, is teaching them how he wants them to minister, and he's giving them the power to do so. Now Jesus is aware of their need to rest and recuperate after this journey in the next couple of verses here. Um, <clears throat> despite his resistance to the earlier attempts of his family to get him to retire and to come home and rest and recuperate, Jesus is always aware that that need uh, can be present. And uh, he's aware that this kind of work can be tiring and taxing. Now, we don't know how long this journey lasted. Uh, I'm sure it was a couple of weeks. It might have been uh, a month or even longer. But when they come back to him, Jesus knows that they're in need of uh, some R&R. And he says so here in verse 31. Uh, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. So he's planning a retreat for them, planning a few days off. Mention again, there were many coming and going. They didn't even have time to eat on some occasions. So the Lord's aware of uh, what our needs are and that from time to time we need a little bit of physical rest, a little bit of getting away, and so they depart to a deserted place, that doesn't mean a desert, but a less populated place, 
uh, in the boat and they're sailing off a few miles away where they can just get some time together and recuperate and then get right back into it. Um, Vance Habner said, if you don't come up, uh, if you don't come apart and rest, you will come apart. Uh, some of us, I don't think, believe that. Uh, you workaholics uh, don't want to take any time off. But if Jesus took a few days off, why can't you? Uh, we ought to plan that from time to time. It's good for us. It's refreshing. But I think the important thing to know here is that time was going to be with Jesus. So the disciples were going to be apart. They're going to rest for a while. But Jesus isn't going to just let them sleep all day. They're going to be taught. They're, they're going to uh, hear more from him <clears throat> about um, who he is future ministry, understanding the Old Testament, bringing it all together. And that's important for us as well, uh, too, to, to be together um, with the Lord for a time of refreshment really every day. Now, as he prepares to help his disciples uh, be refreshed, we also find something else, and that is Christ's compassion on the crowd in verse 33. And uh, unfortunately, the Lord's plans are frustrated by the people. But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. Now, by this time, people knew who Jesus was by sight. They knew his 12 disciples. And uh, somehow, some of them saw them departing and heading out to sea in a certain direction. They kind of determined what direction that's going, and so they're following on the shore. And most of the crowd, uh, according to the number who were fed later, are men. Uh, and I would assume the younger men are able to actually run and maybe see the boat offshore, figure out where they might be heading. They've been here before. Or maybe that's where they're going. And as they travel, other people in villages between them and their destination want to know whatever, what's going on, so they join them. So I'm sure they have this real long line of people along the shore uh, trying to figure out where Jesus is going, and somehow they outdistance him, and they're waiting for them, the very people they're trying to get away from. So imagine how you would have felt. If you're trying to get away for a while, uh, you need some rest, you need some refreshment. Jesus is playing this great retreat, and you uh, are, are coming into shore, and there's thousands of people there wrecking your plans. Would you be frustrated? Would you be angry? Would you be irritated? I know I would. So uh, would you want to send them packing or go someplace where they couldn't follow you? I think most of us probably would, but not the Lord Jesus. <coughs> Notice here in verse 34, <coughs> Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, and he was not moved with anger or irritation, but with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. <coughs> Excuse me. So they're not able to get away. 
As a matter of fact, they've got to go through the same kind of thing they've been going through for many, many days. Um, he saw these people. He saw them as sheep, people who needed guidance, who needed care. Many of them viewed him as the miracle worker, the healer, but really not the shepherd of their soul. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd who were in need of the gospel of the kingdom, not just in need of healing, things of that nature, but of the truth about who he was. Israel uh, did have shepherds in that day who were supposed to guide the people in the ways of God. The priests, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, uh, all of these were supposed to be leading them spiritually and morally as God's flock. <clears throat> but they had become corrupt. They were just politically minded. They were concerned more about their own power and position and authority than the needs of the people. And really the people were the, uh, the way that they thought they were going to get power by manipulating them. So the Lord acts as the good shepherd and he begins to feed the people, not with food, but with teaching, with his word. And their spiritual welfare, of course, is his main concern. Well, sometimes our plans will be frustrated. Sometimes people will unknowingly show up and take our time or want us to do things and we can get easily irritated. Uh, we should try to have compassion and help others as much as we can, even when our intentions get interrupted. Our attitude should always be one of ministry toward others. But as the day wears on, <clears throat> another problem arises, a very serious one, which becomes a dilemma that displays Christ's deity. In verse 35, it's starting to get late. <clears throat> the day is far spent. So the disciples come to Jesus and they remind him, uh, this is a deserted place. It's not very well populated. The hour's getting late. You need to send them away into the surrounding territory and the villages so they can get some bread, so they can eat, and maybe they'll just all go back home and we can get some rest. So this is their, their mindset, their thinking. And it's logical. Uh, uh, this is the immediate solution to the situation. Just send everybody away. They can get something to eat on the way back home or, or they can stay over someplace. And in their uh, rush to follow Jesus in the first place, it's very unlikely they brought any kind of provisions with them. It doesn't seem the disciples have anything either at least not enough to feed this kind of a crowd. And maybe they were thinking that they had to get provisions as well. So it's time to end the meeting and, and uh, get back to what we were going to do. But Jesus tells the disciples something that's really kind of astounding. <coughs> Down at verse 37, he says, you give them something to eat. Now, can you imagine uh, their response to that? I'm sure there were 24 eyes rolling around in their heads. I'm sure they might have been thinking, 
uh, Lord, are you a little bit crazy? You see how many people are out there? How are we supposed to feed them? We don't even think to feed ourselves. So uh, one of them pipes up and says, how many loaves, uh, 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 verse uh, 37, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, 200 denarii, how much is that? Well, one denarii in that day was a day's wage for an ordinary worker. So, that's about eight months' wages, and that would be barely enough to feed all these people. They don't have that kind of money. They're not going to take up a collection. So, this bringing out the idea here in the mind of the uh, 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 disciples... This is an impossible situation that you're trying to get us to solve here. We don't have the resources, and uh, you know what are we supposed to do? And you've told us, give them something to eat, and there's no way we can do that. Now, really, this should not have caught them by surprise. <clears throat> if we put all the uh, gospel records together about this occasion... We can go to John's gospel, and we find out that Jesus proposed this to Philip when he saw the crowd as soon as they got to the shore. And he asked Philip uh, about feeding this number of people. Philip does a calculation in his head, comes up with the same thing the disciples say later. Well, it would take a couple hundred denarii. (coughs) So apparently Jesus wanted them to start thinking about the problem like he was ahead of time. It says there he knew what he would do, but he wants his disciples to figure out what they would do or what they should do in this seemingly impossible situation. Uh, Would they recognize that Jesus could do something about it if they really knew who he was? They're only thinking about what they could not do, not what Jesus could do. And again, you think of the time they spent together. God has sustained them over the last few weeks of their missionary journey. They didn't take any provisions then either, but they were taken care of. Jesus has performed hundreds of wonders by now, Why weren't they thinking about what he could do in the situation? They had not learned that what might be humanly impossible to them was not impossible to God. What Jesus is about to do is something that could be done only by God. A lot of things he's already done could only be done by God. So the conclusion ought to be Jesus is God in flesh And therefore, he can take care of the situation. And he begins to do so here in verse 38. He takes charge of the situation. Okay, first of all, he asks, what what do we have? How many loaves do you have? Go and check it out. So they spread out through the crowd. They try to find some food. And guess what? One little boy's got a lunch. And he's got five loaves. He's got two fish. And, you know... The disciples say, well, uh, Andrew, he says, well, what's this for, you know, so many people? Uh, How can this supply the need? 
And we have to think about these little loaves. <clears throat> these weren't, you know, uh, the loaves that you find sliced and in the plastic bag when you go to the store. These were actually little, more like pita bread, flat bread, round bread. Uh, it was enough to feed a person, in this case, probably a little boy, and two fish, not real big fish, you know, not five pounders, uh, uh, more like sardines. All right? So how are we going to feed all these people with, these, uh, with what we have here? Well, Jesus then instructs them. All right, sit the people down in orderly fashion by rank. Put them in groups of 50 and 100. Uh, this would have made it easier to, to count them, easier to distribute the food. Uh, the term ranks here means uh, actually garden plots. So if you were off the shore, uh, out in the sea, and you looked at this, it might look like a human patchwork, a human quilt with these different colored uh, garments sitting there with, in, in the green grass and it just looks like a, a human quill. And then the Lord uh, commands them in verse 39 to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in the ranks and then he takes uh, the loaves in verse 41. He looks up to heaven. He blesses and breaks the loaves and he starts giving them out to disciples. So he's thanking the Lord uh, God the Father, for the provision, <coughs> he starts breaking off little pieces. He just keeps breaking off little pieces and breaking off little pieces and little pieces of fish. And uh, apparently they had some kind of baskets there because they, they took up some later. And the disciples get a load, take it to this group, start feeding them. They come back, there's still more there. Jesus keeps peeling it off. We don't know how, but he did. And he did so until all these people had all they needed. Verse 30, 42. They ate, they all ate, and they were full. So it's not the, uh, the Chinese method of solving the problem. Uh, the more people you have, the, the thinner you, you cut the entree, right? Until it's just like paper thin. No, they all had enough to eat. And uh, what's even more amazing uh, in verse 44, now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Back up to 43, uh, 12 baskets full of fragments are left over. So more is left over than what was there available in the first place. So it's abundance, it's super abundance. And 5,000 men. Uh, the other Gospels mentioned there were some women and children as well. So more than 5,000. I don't know how many women and children could have made the trek that far, but some obviously did. But let's say at least 6,000, maybe even more than that. 6,000 people. That's, uh, that's bigger than Waterloo, isn't it? And Jesus feeds them from this simple amount of uh, provision. So this is an amazing situation that the Lord Jesus has uh, brought about. And how then does this display his deity? Well, the most obvious thing is this had to be a work of God. There's no way, uh, humanly speaking, this was possible. Um, and it may have made a conscientious Jew as the people 
begin to be aware of this as well, it may have brought to their mind some Old Testament parallels. For instance, the miracle of Elisha, who was with a group of a hundred prophets, and they had no provision, they had no food. Somebody brings to them, uh, out of their, uh, their grace, 20 loaves. And they would have been a little bit bigger loaves of bread. But again, you got a hundred men. And those men were somehow filled with that 20 loaves. It was a miracle. But on this occasion with Jesus, it's over 50 times the people and one quarter the loaves. So it's something only, again, God could do. And it's far greater than that miracle of Elisha's day. As they thought back in their history, they would probably be reminded of Moses, the prophet in the wilderness, and God's provision of the manna. He fed millions of people every single day with that bread of heaven. And he sustained the people with that bread for 40 years. And Jesus later, the next day, will use that as an illustration of what he was doing and who he was because he used this to say that he is the true bread of life who comes down from heaven. And we can read about that in John chapter 6. Let's just flip over there for a second so we can see how Jesus interprets it and brings it to the people and teaches them from it. And then, again, this is something that the disciples are not grasping. In verse 32 of John 6, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For this bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And of course, he's talking about himself. And then in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And then down to verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So Jesus uses this whole thing as an illustration that he is the living bread of God, the spiritual bread of God that gives life to those who believe. And what he did the previous day was an illustration of this, that he came down from heaven. Again, he's more than a man. He's God in flesh. But the disciples missed the significance of this. And in the four gospel accounts, you'll find no response on the part of the disciples. Nothing is mentioned after the feeding of the 5,000. The only response that is given or recorded is that by John, once again, where the people are starting to figure this out, and the people proclaim that Jesus is the prophet that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy, and as a result, they attempt to make Jesus their king. After all, we can see how he can heal the sick and the wounded, and he could heal our armies. He has fed 5,000 men here. He could feed our armies and defeat our enemies, and that was their thinking of what the Messiah was supposed to do. 
Well, all of this precipitates then the next miracle, which we did not read, beginning in verse 45. And this is the miraculous walking on water. And what precipitates this is that reaction of the crowd when you put all the stories together. Jesus immediately sends the disciples away back on the boat. He does not want them to get caught up in this excitement of making him king. They probably would have loved that. So he wants them to be away from the crowd. Then he sends the crowd away because, you know, there's a human temptation there to become the king. And Jesus then goes up the mountain and he begins to pray, maybe, uh, again, resisting that human temptation. So that's what precipitates this whole event of their departure. And we find them again in a difficult situation. Okay, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. Well, he sent the multitude away. He doesn't want to be their king. That's not what he came for the first time. And when he sent them uh, the multitude away, he departed to the mountain. <coughs> excuse me, to the mountain to pray. Now, what's happening as the night falls upon them? Uh, and again, this probably took uh, a good bit of time. Now, when evening came. The boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. So I'm not sure if he could see this uh, with the naked eye or if he knew this because of who he was. Uh, but he sees them out, maybe in the moonlight. Of course, if, if the winds come up and starting to get stormy, there might not have been moonlight. But he knows they're out there in the middle of the sea, and they're struggling. They're having a difficult time. Verse 48. He saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. So the winds come up. We've talked about how the sea can change so drastically and quickly there. They're trying to get where they're going, but they're making very little headway. They're they're going against the wind. Uh, It's it's very difficult for them. Uh, They're they're. Uh, straining, they're struggling as they go. The uh, the term straining there is translated elsewhere as torture. So it's talking about physical difficulty and, and um, being sore from what they're doing. They're not in danger of capsizing, but they're just not able to get anywhere and it's taking them far longer than it should have. But then something strange and frightening occurs. Now about the fourth watch of the night, that's about that's between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. He came to them walking on the sea and it looks like he would have gone right by them. That's from their perspective. Now, we know who it is. But they don't. Verse 49. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him 
and were troubled. Now, if you were out in the middle of Seneca Lake, and uh, the wind was up, and you were just in a rowboat, it's dark out, and you see this figure coming toward you uh, in a white garment, and uh, you know human beings can't walk on water, what would you think? You would probably think uh, you're either going out of your head or that's a ghost. And that's what the disciples thought. Uh, they're not aware of who it is. Uh, and they think it's this ghostly spirit. Jesus probably would have looked that way because he wore a white uh, uh, overgarment. Our English word uh, phantom derives from this Greek term. And uh, no human being can walk on water. So the disciples believe this must be a spirit. It must be a phantom. It must be a ghost. It's otherworldly. And we probably would have had the same reaction. They cry out in fear. They're terrified. Uh, the word to cry out here is the same one used of the of uh, legion uh, screaming out among the tombs. So they were really afraid. Now we know it's Jesus. And he's coming to them. He's walking on the boisterous waves that are driven by the wind. The disciples, though, don't recognize him. They don't guess it might be him. They think it's an apparition and that it looks like he's going right by. But Jesus has a purpose in all this. He wasn't going to go right by. He just wants to make sure that they see him and recognize this is another humanly impossible situation and he wants them to see him in yet this new way and spark their understanding of who he is. He's got to reveal himself in a way that would really wake them up to his full identity. Now Jesus immediately, it says in verse 50, talk with them said to them, be of good cheer, it's I, don't be afraid. So he calls their fears right away <coughs> and identifies who he is. Uh, you know, take, take courage. Don't be afraid, it's just me. And at that, they welcomed him into the boat and we put everything together again. Two more miracles occur. First of all, the wind stops. Suddenly, not gradually, it just stops like it had before in the storm. And Luke also mentions that when he got in the boat, it immediately came to shore. So that would be another miracle. Now, this time, there is a great response on the part of the disciples. They were greatly amazed, verse 51, in themselves beyond measure and marvel. So they have all these words piling up saying how uh, even beyond imagination, they were just out of their minds wondering about this and amazed by it and just stunned by it. And we don't have any words spoken here. We just have that, that reaction. But the interesting thing is, although they couldn't comprehend what happened there with the 5,000, there's not much of a, a reaction. 
They were obtuse. They didn't grasp it. It says here they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Jesus trying to soften their hearts now. <clears throat> so, Matthew, if we go to his account, this is where he informs us of Peter walking on the water to go meet Jesus. Remember that story? So we've got that in there as well. This is all happening at the same time as we put these things together. And uh, his narrative uh, tells us the response of the people, the, the men in the boat, when Jesus came in and all these things happened, they come back to shore. He says, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. It's finally begun to click. This is not just a man. This is the Son of God. That was a major breakthrough. And not very far down the road now, we're going to hear Jesus saying, Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And they have that great confession you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And this is the first actual dawning of it, the inkling of it. They're still going to have issues, they're still going to have doubts, they're still going to not fully understand, but this was the turning point to bring them to the full knowledge of the person of Christ. Well, Let's uh, put together some applications here as we finish today. First of all, we can be thankful that we're not sheep without a shepherd today. Jesus, the good shepherd, cares about each one of us. He knows us thoroughly. He knows what we're struggling with. He knows what we need. He knows what we care about. And through his word, he instructs us and provides us with all the information that we need to have a successful spiritual walk with him, if we'll be faithful, if we'll trust him. <clears throat> as we mentioned, the miracle of the loaves serves as an illustration of Jesus as the bread of life. As food gives us physical life and sustenance, so Jesus gives us spiritual life and sustenance. But we have to partake of him. We have to take him into ourselves by faith trusting in his work on the cross of Calvary. And then each day we, we take him in through his word and we grow in him and are continued to be sustained by him. And then we find here also that Jesus can work through humanly impossible situations. We sometimes find ourselves in circumstances or situations that we, we've tried to work out, but there just doesn't seem to be a solution. It's impossible. And the only one we, can, uh, we know who can resolve those things is the Lord. And if we truly are seeking his will and trusting in him and what he can do because he's God, he's going to help work those things out in his time and in his way. And our job is to not lose hope. And finally... Do we truly recognize Jesus for who he really is? <clears throat> All too often, people act like Jesus was just a man. 
the the uh, the popular thing is to uh, refer to him as our our friend, our buddy, uh, in, in that kind of terminology. But what uh, Mark has done in his gospel is to pre- present us with all of these wonders to convey to us he's more than just a man. He's the son of God. He heals our diseases. He protects us from evil. He meets all of our needs, material and spiritual. He's more than just a man. He should be highly revered, highly respected, not uh, treated in a casual way. He gives us more than we deserve and often more than we expect. And so we should revere him and praise him and worship him and serve him for all of eternity. And may God help us to do that each day. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for all the revelations we have in your word about the person of Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that he indeed is God in flesh, that he's not just merely a man. We're thankful, Lord, that he is our Savior and our Lord. Help us to treat him that way each and every day. We thank you, Lord, that through um, him, he provides all that we need. He is the bread of life. He is the one who can help us with all of our issues and problems. He is the one who provides all of our needs. So, Lord, help us to constantly be going to him and uh, uh, trusting him to help us through life each and every day. Help us, Lord, to be his faithful witnesses, we ask, through this coming week in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take our hymnal this morning as we close. And the hymn number 145 sounds like a Christmas song, but it really isn't. It's about who Jesus really is. So let's stand together and we'll sing a few stanzas. Number 145. Who is he in yonder stall? We're going to uh, begin with the second stanza.
your class? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, off that. 